0: Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy.
1: This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys.
0: Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Today, we're so excited to welcome Carrie Schwab Pomerantz to the show. Carrie is one of America's most trusted financial voices. She's also an author and the mother of three. So, you were raised by an icon in the financial world. Yeah. How aware of your father's career were you when you were growing up?
2: So, what a lot of people don't realize about my childhood. Is that first of all, my parents uh, married very young, right out of college, and so in their early, you know, twenties. Actually, my mom was nineteen, and they went to Stanford, and I was I was born at Stanford. But my dad was a struggling businessman, well into my mid to late twenties. So we had sort of your kind of basic childhood. You know, we lived on a cul-de-sac. Um, life was simple. You know, I, I um, didn't get an allowance or, you know, just rode my bike and hung out in the, in the neighborhood. So, you know, and, and my dad was, you know, continually to strive and my mom was a homemaker. You know, there just wasn't a lot going on, I guess you could say, compared to what our children today face.
1: When you say that your dad was struggling, in what form did that take and when did it turn?
2: So he had started several businesses that had failed and he didn't start Schwab until I, well, I was 14 and it wasn't necessarily the firm, like the discount firm that originally, you know, came out to be, which of course we don't like to call us that anymore because we've evolved so much. But it was at a time it was in 1975, so I'm aging myself. Well he had started the, he had started the company when, in 74 and it was just a regular brokerage firm. And then um, when it was called May Day when the SEC deregulated commissions and, and, and allowed firms to either increase their, their commissions or reduce them. And while most firms, the traditional ones, increase their commissions, my dad chose, to reduce them and try to democratize investing and make it more accessible because it was super expensive to place a trade and so investing was only for the the wealthy. Then when I was 16 he asked me if I wanted to come work for the company uh, which I did and it was basically a startup. I, I remember this pretty vividly it was two rooms Uh, One room where they had, you know, not very fancy desks floating around. And that was where my dad and his senior management (laughs) uh, sat. And there was no beautiful offices. And then next door was another room with an oval table. And they had what I call the brokers sitting around it with their black rotary phones and taking in client calls. And then in the corner was Henrietta who was the switchboard operator, you know, with the bouffant switching in client calls. So, I, I mean, even the 1970s, that doesn't sound like that would be the case, but that's really what it was.
1: Were your siblings given the same invitation to come work for the company? Well, I was the oldest
2: and I'm the one who stayed, really. I think I became the most connected. Yes, all my siblings worked at summer jobs as well. As my my dad likes to say, I was a file clerk with my first job. I used to tell people that I was, you know, the secretary's assistant. But he said, you know, he demoted me to file clerk. <laughs> and and my and my um, siblings, you know, worked in the mail room and so forth. But I worked a lot of summers there as well in the branches where we serve clients. And those were the days. Again, where you know, today now you can go in your account, you can see, you can place a trade, you can look at what you, your, your, your trade was placed at, you know, after it's been um, executed. But in those days, w- our clients have to use to call us for a quote, like to ask us what the price of IBM or Apple. Of course, Apple wasn't around, but, you know, call us just for what the price was. Or we would have to call them and tell them, you know, whether their trade went through or not. So it was very manual. And so I was one of those phone people, you know, uh, when I got a little, little bit older, so um, def- definitely the, the dark ages.
0: Were you interested in investing as a teenager?
2: Like, did you get it? I'll be honest with you. It was, it was still a little bit over my head about what it really was. And it wasn't until, so after about, let's see, after I graduated from college, I thought I wanted to be into, into shipping. That was, <laughs> I don't know why, I thought that was really kind of a cool thing. But um, I worked for a container, a leasing company, and that's where they lease these big, you know, containers and so forth. But anyway, I did that. I did that for a year. I kind of wanted to prove that I could go, you know, I didn't have to work for my dad. And and then, you know, I started kind of wanting to come back and I and I reached out to sort of his head of HR and mentioned that I was thinking about going back in the business. And I was thinking, you know, maybe Merrill Lynch or, you know, naming some other competitors, and she said, that's ridiculous. You know, we're having, we're starting our first training program for young college graduates. And it's going to be a rotation program. And then at the end, you'll you'll study for your broker's license, and then you could go anywhere you want. And at that time, it was just then when Bank of America bought us. And the company offered everybody free trades in the Bank of America stock. And so I literally, I mean, I was 23 years old. I didn't have a lot of money. In fact, I was paid, I'm embarrassed even to tell you, I think I was paid $13,000 a year or something like that. And so I bought two shares of Bank of America just on my own. And um, I still hold those shares, by the way. And uh, they're they're a little bit more than, I think they were $22 each. And I used to joke that my dad was the largest shareholder because he got for selling Schwab to Bank of America, he got the Schwab's or the Bank of America stock and I had my two shares. So I was the smallest (laughs) and he was the largest.
1: Even in that training program, did you feel like, okay, I'm Charles Schwab's daughter? How did you come out from that? Well, that's a
2: good question. You know, again, I don't think my dad was really that well known. Um, You know, he was just becoming known. And I don't know, he's still my dad. And so you don't really, and, and it's funny, we, we keep him in place. I remember, I don't know, CNBC at one time voted him as one of the most powerful men in business for the, I don't know, the 20th century or so, I don't know, something like that. And I remember my husband saying, yeah, not so, you know, in his own household and, and it's, it's kind of that way. So, but I've always been very respectful of that, you know, from a career perspective, maybe. You know, I think about it often about could I have been too respectful, right? As, as a woman, we tend not to always ask for what we want. And not to say that I didn't, but I always, I always, even to this day, go along. And and because I don't want to overuse, extend my my power and, you know, earn my stripes. And, and I remember when I got a big promotion, when I became senior vice president, a lot of my colleagues said, oh my God, about time. And that's another interesting thing is I I don't, I think when you're the daughter or you're the son, your colleagues think, oh, you're taken care of by your, your parent, your dad. And my, my dad is very sensitive to nepotism, even though, you know, I've been there for, you know, my whole, for, I don't even say how many years, you know, and, and earned my own stripes, but, but my colleagues would say, yeah, it's about time. And so, People thought that my dad was taking care of me and my dad thought that, you know, the system was taking care of me. So I I think I was always, you know, trying to strive and again, be my best.
1: Your parents got divorced at some point during your childhood and your dad started a new family. When was that?
2: So my parents divorced when I was nine, so very young. And to be honest with you, it really I mean, it still, you know, unfortunately affects me to this day. I think it affects all of us right now. And as I, you know, mentioned, he, my dad was a struggling businessman. So it wasn't, again, he wasn't the Charles Schwab that people know. And my mom was a homemaker. And I think it really affects how I think and operate, you know, as a businesswoman, as just, you know, a married woman, you know, to this day. And um, but my dad remarried when I was I think, 12, 12 or 13. And I have two wonderful new siblings. I mean, they're not new, you know, and very close to both of them as well. So there's five of us. Actually, I was the oldest. I'm the oldest of the five. There was myself and, and three of us. And then my brother and sister from the second marriage.
1: When you say it impacted you, in what way? How did it impact you? What are the relics of that today?
2: You know, you never really know, right? You're not that self-conscious, at least I wasn't. But I think you know that I'm very passionate about financial literacy and kind of, you know, taking what my dad did to the next level in terms of creating accessibility for what I would call underserved populations And that doesn't mean poor. It just means not served well, including women. And I think subconsciously, because my mom was a homemaker, by the way, they met at Stanford. She was a Phi Beta Kappa. It's not about being smart or anything, but just, you know, she was a woman of her time. And and they struggled financially. And I think subconsciously, I, A, wanted to always be independent and, and always work. And those two things are still to this day. You know, I remember people saying to me, and I'm sure you guys get this too sometimes, is why do you work? And it's, it's, to me, by the way, that was kind of offensive. I, I love working. And I actually do have to work. I want to have the lifestyle I want to have. I, I, I'm i going to work and, and I want to have purpose. And, and I do have purpose. So and I add and I think I add value, hopefully. Carrie, I just have to jump
0: in. It reminds me because after I had my first daughter, I was talking to a friend of mine who'd also just had their first child. And I was, I was a lawyer at the time. And, you know, we were talking about work. And she said to me, she's like, well, you know, unlike you, I don't have to work. Ooh, And it just felt like this, like, a, it was like, I had, I, I grew up with a working mother. My parents were divorced when I was in my teens. Like I, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me because it's my own experience in many ways. Yeah, And if my mother hadn't worked, we would have been in trouble. You know, these, these things that I grew up with. Yeah. And to hear that, I was like, in my mind, I was like, it is 2014. We cannot say these things.
2: Yeah. No. But we do. We still no. do. No. And it doesn't mean, you know, I was, I was just actually talking to, to, now we're getting kind of philosophical about motherhood, <laughs> but I was talking to, I think it was a colleague, and I was saying, I remember feeling guilty that I worked. And by the way, my husband, and, you know, I have a wonderful, very, you know, active uh, husband who's been a great father and great partner and um, which which helps a lot so i was all you know always there for the important moments but you always wonder am i going to scar my children because i'm a working mom and now my kids they're the oldest is 32 the youngest is 25 and i would say they're just as healthy as you know any other kid you know i compared to you know others in my life who kids who have parents stayed home and I think that it all it all shakes
1: out. Well, there's also the whole, I mean, role model aspect of it, right? I mean, there's a, a reason that 20, that that daughters of working moms earn 27% more as adults than daughters of stay-at-home moms, because that's the model they've grown up with. And so I think that, you know, what I always try to say is like, just because you gave birth or got married, you don't lose your ambition and that sense of purpose you were talking about earlier. We all feel more fulfilled when we have our own Goals that we're striving towards. Yeah, and
2: purpose. Yeah, purpose really is what fuels you. And I know there's books a, a, about that. You know, about sort of like the five components of living a healthy, very vibrant life. And 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 one of those is definitely purpose. Whether it's you know motherhood, work, philanthropy, civic work, whatever it may be. So important that we we have that independence. And that's and that's pretty much I think Amy, you probably felt the same way. That's Kind of, I think, the subconscious learnings of my parents' divorce.
1: And now for a quick break. Do any of your kids now work in the business? They
2: all work in the business. You know, some are here, some are there. And um, they're, all three of them are big-time investors, I have to tell you. And that's, you know, a whole other story. But one of my sons is, I'll call him a sort of a social media uh I don't want to say a star, but he's an influencer, social around sales. And my other son, he's a in marketing, and I would say that kind of comes from probably from me and and actually my dad. He's really, a, I would say that's his superpower is a marketer. And and my daughter, again, she, who worked at Schwab, works for um, a private equity firm on ESG, you know, environmental, social, and governance person you know where she analyzes companies and ensuring that they are socially responsible so they're i don't know they all sort of have a little aspect of what i've done but not now they did their summer jobs they love schwab they understand investing but but they kind of went their own way which is i I kind of
0: i I, i encourage that what if anything what did you teach your kids about investing and like in general how would you suggest anyone start investing there are a lot of women who've never made that first investment
2: yeah so just you know i mean with my, my kids, you know, I started talking about money when they were young, you know, starting with an allowance, and you know,
3: fast forward, you know, I, I took them into the Schwab. BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast, investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
4: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply.
5: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has 4 to 8 times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic.
6: This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History class a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's
2: go places. Office. When they were about 12, I thought, okay, that's a good time to invest. And they're you know, somewhat mature and made them come into the Schwab office and um, meet the financial consultant. Because I do think when, when I even talk to my colleagues who are women, they were the ones, I, I mean, their parents exposed them to investing in an early age. And I would say my girlfriends who are more intimidated by it were not exposed. So I tried to demystify the process because even an office, you know, a brokerage office, Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, it can be intimidating. And uh, because it historically has been a man's world. So I just the act of bringing them in, having them fill out the paperwork and talk about the basic tenets of investing um, which are you know, always invest in a diversified portfolio. Consider investing for something that you're not going to do or you're not going to need the money at least for five to seven years. So retirement, child's college education, you know, a house down the road 10 years from now. So whatever. So so diversification, uh, long term. And then when you do invest, you set up an asset allocation. In other words, a percentage of stocks, bonds and cash that reflect your risk tolerance. And somebody who's young is going to have more stocks. Somebody who's older, closer to retirement, is going to have more bonds and cash, um, because we know that the market can be volatile. Of course, right now, the last ten years has just been soaring. So a lot of newer investors think that's all it does, you know. Uh, which I worry about that. But but those, you know, I, I taught the kids the basic tenets, but I did try to expose them to the, you know, to the field of finance, so so they can you know do it on their own. Now they're big time investors. <laughs> A little bit too much so. I remember when my, one of my sons, he was, I don't know, 16 years old. And he told my dad he was a day trader. Now, you understand, my dad doesn't. Uh, teenagers are not day traders. And that's not okay. Okay. Um, he really wasn't. He just didn't know what he was talking about. But in terms of, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of um, what people should do. Well, first of all, like as I mentioned, investing is for the long term. Let's, let's just, because I can go all over the place here, so I, I want to try to be somewhat crisp. Let, let's just talk about sort of the foundations of, of investing. First of all, you want to have a plan. And, and, and in in other words, you want to know where you stand financially, how much money you have, how much money you owe, and what are your goals and what do you need to get do to get there? You know, how much do you have to save? And studies show that people who actually do that simple calculations and, and uh, save on average 300% more than those who do not. It's because you're aware, right? You, you know what's going on. It, it's as simple as is, is that. And of course, if your finances are more complicated, you definitely wanna get professional help. But, um, and then the other is saving. This is saving for retirement because it's the most expensive endeavor that you'll ever have. And it's so critical to start when you're young but I call it the minus 10% rule, which I find that it's very helpful for people. And what it means is if you're in your 20s and you start, that's your beginning of starting to save and invest for your re- retirement, you should save 10%. 15% is even better of your income for the rest of your life. And you should have a relatively comfortable retirement. It'll you know grow over time and build into a nest egg that you should have about the same uh, standard of living. However, if you wait until your 30s, you're going to have to increase that amount to about 20%, call it the minus, you know, you're in your 30s, you minus 10, 20%. And then if you wait till your 40s to save and invest for your retirement, it's going to be about 30%. And so you can see that the longer you wait for saving for your retirement, the harder it is. And of course, we all know when we get into our 40s, 30s, 40s, we start to have children, we want to buy a house, just life gets more complicated. So it's, it's so much easier if we can get young people to start investing for their um, retirement, right out of the gate. With my own children, I got them to start saving for their retirement with a Roth IRA when they were 16, 16 years old, and they got their first real job. And they still re- save money in their Roth IRA. But when you get that first job, and you have a 401k with an, a company match, that's an absolute must to save at least up to the company match because otherwise you're walking away from free money. I mean most companies match what you know, one for one up to 3% of your of your income something like that. That's doubling your money right there. You can't, you can't get that kind of return in the market. So it's best to to do that. And and then you asked about investing. Okay. So the 401k is a great way, right? Your company usually provides some type of diversified portfolio, like a target fund, Index funds, which I'm glad to talk about more. And index funds are a great way to invest. And actually, that's what I use a lot, indexing, uh, which really is about mirroring the market. It's an index like the Standard & Poor's 500, the 500 largest companies in the United States. Um, there's index index indices that follow that. And so you just know you're participating in the market. So, And then there's robo-advisors. So, so lots of options now for, for new investors. But I have to tell you something, um, another cute story, if you don't mind. You asked me about my first investments, and I mentioned about the two shares of Bank America. But when I was, I think, I don't know, 23-ish, and I opened up my first IRA, I was just the beginning when they were becoming popular. And um, I called my dad, and I said, you know, what do you think I should invest in? And, of course, I was hoping for he to tell me the hot stock of the day. And um, he said, Carrie, just go to our mutual fund marketplace and pick two equity funds. It's not about the hot stock. It's about participating in the market. And he's so right. So for new investors, it's not about picking the hot stock. It's about um, investing in a diversified portfolio for the long, for the long term and not putting all your eggs in one basket. And know that the markets are going to go up and down.
1: That is such great advice. I'm like, everyone's probably taking notes at this point.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. I kind of you, you kind of opened a can of worms with that question. <laughs> but I, the thing is, I know you're so passionate
0: about it. And from what I know about your writing and speaking with you, is you make it sound less complicated and less scary. And I think that there is this sense, right, that that it's something you can only do if you really understand the markets or if you're an economics major. And that's just not true.
1: Well, especially, you know, so many of our listeners probably have not yet delved into the market. And when you're an adult and you haven't tried anything, you know, it's it's terrifying. So I think that you've kind of made it a lot more accessible for us. And and that's great. I want to ask a little bit about your marriage because I know that you know your husband Gary Pomerantz, is a renowned author, and I'd love to hear a little bit about how the two of you have navigated money together and and what that's like. Because you know the number one problem that couples in America have is money, and uh, maybe you could share a little bit about how you have worked it out.
2: You know, when we first married, we were pretty young too. We were about twenty five. And we didn't have a lot of money. As I mentioned, out of college, I was making $13,000. <laughs> and, and um, but we used to, I remember walking our dog and we would talk about sort of our hopes and dreams professionally and, you know, with our personal lives. And, and I do think that's an important conversation for all of us to have. And we do a lot of times miss out on that. You're talking about what are your money values? What are your hopes and dreams as a couple? And then you know, formulating your financial lives around that. And I think when you're, when you come together, you're more likely to achieve success. But I will tell you that I often think it's really important for the, you know, mine, yours, ours pot of money. And we always have had that. And you know, oftentimes in couples, there's a primary dis- breadwinner or somebody who makes more than the other. You want to make sure that, it's, you know, that the mine and yours are somewhat even so that there's a level of uh, independence in a, in a way, and there's no kind of competition or ill will feelings and so forth. And, and then the hours, of course, is what you're trying to build for, you know, your mutual goals, whether it's that house, you know, retirement, philanthropy, your children, and, and that's how we've operated.
1: I grew up with parents who worked together and they always only had one tranche of money and it was theirs. How does it work when there's a, a yours and mine, especially when there's a disparity in incomes?
2: Well, um, I mean, one idea is, and I and a colleague of mine who was in a second marriage did this, one of them was making more than the other. And So they would set out a certain amount of money in each of their own accounts. I'm just going to make this up. $500 in each of their accounts. And then the rest would go into the joint account. So that's an easy way. That or just, you know, being generous with with what you have. I mean, it doesn't have to be to the, you know, penny. I remember someone telling me a story that a couple would split everything. They've been married for years, and they split cab rides. You know, you know. Everybody has their own way. Uh, my husband and I were not that perfect, to be honest with you, and we definitely, have, you know, had our struggles over the years. But like any uh, marriage, there's compromise, and there's, you know, there's butting heads, and sometimes he wins, and sometimes I win. But you know, you try to make it as even so it doesn't create a power play in your marriage. What about the division of household work between you and your husband? Well, (laughs) I, my husband needs to be here to defend himself (laughs) because I would say, you know, I did a lot of the typical stuff, you know, the typical woman stuff, but I, you know, also got help. I I wasn't afraid to get help, and I know that, you know, not all, not every, you know, you're not always in a position and it wasn't until later, you know, when our careers started getting, you know, more established and so forth that we could start getting more help. So no one felt like everything was dumped on, on them. And, you know, of course, you know, in a marriage, some everybody kind of brings something to the table. You know, my husband was really good with the homework, you know, the, the college tours, the you know, coaching, uh, going to the games. You know, I was more into food and you know, what are we going to have for dinner? I Maybe mean, that's because I just like food, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, or the logistics of the family. So yeah, we, we divvied it up.
3: But it wasn't, you know, again, there's some battles here and there as well.
1: <laughs> and now for a quick break.
3: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California. And starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
4: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply.
7: This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class.
1: How do you think about all of, I mean, it seems like in the financial world, there are so many changes and it's kind of more rapidly than ever before, especially with what's happening in the crypto world. How do you personally keep up with it? And how do you think about it in terms of your business?
2: So of course, I, you know, trends and so forth. Yeah, I work for Schwab. So I have access to all the best information possible. But in terms of the real trends, you know, I have my kids. You know, they're my sons have been reading Reddit since they were teenagers. Of course, my husband and I, you know, way back when we were like, What is Reddit? And, um, you know, and my husband's a journalist. And, and so, you know, my son was the one who told me the day of the GameStop thing. He knew all about the GameStop. And in fact, he even called my father about it to tell him. I don't know to you know make sure don't do what other firms are doing you know like my father was going to really you know listen to them and uh, so forth you know we we didn't get wrapped up into that thank God but though but but you have to keep in mind that's a lot of crowdsourcing information I would be very wary about all that I mean I know crypto is doing great and there's there's going to be a lot of um, applications to blockchain and so forth. But what I, so another sort of strategy for investing um, is what I call core and explore. Like my, I'll call it my real money. My important money is in a diversified portfolio. And I mentioned ETFs because they don't trade a lot. They just mirror markets and so you get a better tax benefit from it. And most money managers don't outperform the market. To be honest with you, over the long term. So why bother and then pay more taxes? So um, I'm in a very diversified portfolio. But do I like to have fun and you know buy this hot stock or that hot stock? Yeah. And and so I would tell any investor that's fine. Go into crypto. You know buy the, a meme stock, but just know that you can lose it. And so the the explore component of your money is okay as long as you know that you could lose it all
1: what percent should be the explore component? Oh, gosh. I I couldn't
2: even give you that. I, I couldn't give you a percentage. I mean, it could be 5%. It really depends on how much money you have and how established you are. But I hear a lot of young people putting all their eggs in this, you know, one basket. And, you know, of course, some of them are doing great. But you just don't, you just don't know. And also, as I mentioned, the most successful and investors in this country, pension funds, universities, they use the asset allocation model, uh, the diversified portfolio model. And again, you just never know what life's going to bring you. And so I I highly recommend people, especially young people, anybody to make sure they have that core component. We always say you never should have more than 20% in any secure anyone's security so you know a lot of people today work for technology companies and they have a lot of their wealth in their own company for security purposes from risk where you're taking on way too much risk is if you have more than 20% in in any industry or any one stock so that's also kind of a rule of thumb used in our business but again I think it depends on how much money you have you know if you're if you're putting everything that you have you know your, your whole retirement or your future That's not such a good idea. Even 20% if you don't have a lot in in the core component.
1: All right, Amy, you want to go to the speed round now?
2: Yes. Carrie,
1: what is your evening routine? I do
2: a lot of times either work out with a trainer or do Pilates early evening. And then a lot of times I cocktail with my husband um, to kind of wind down the day. And um, and then making dinner together.
1: That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> you make an empty nest look less scary.
2: <laughs> you start to get used to your own routine again, and you kind of like it because you can do whatever you want.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> what What is your social life like? Well, I'm
2: definitely an extrovert. And you know, girlfriends are a big part of my life and going to, to dinner and so forth. Of course, it's been you know, a little bit slower with, with the pandemic, but I, I love to travel. I have multiple women's groups that we get together. And um, you know, in the course of course the couples, I, I, I kind of alluded to this. I'm a big, um, I love sports, like working out with a trainer, Pilates, going hiking. I'm taking up tennis again through the pandemic, I start trying to play some golf. So I'm kind of, you know, getting a basic uh, foundation of golf there. So I don't know, I just love to be active and with people. What book are you reading? So I just finished um, All the Shah's Men. uh, That's about Iran and the U.S. coup back in the early 50s. And that was recommended to me uh, as a great book to better understand why we have the relationship with Iran, you know, you know, the contentious relationship we have today. And that was really interesting, but a completely different book. I'm only, my Kindle says I'm about 22% in it and it's called Breath. And it's really how proper breathing makes us more healthy. And we all tend to probably because we're always stressed out and running, running, running. We we have slow or or fast, uh, shallow breaths and it's not good for our overall health. Our colleague, Lou Burns,
0: will come in now with the male perspective question.
8: During the pandemic, um, something that I've always wanted to do was investing, and I've always been afraid of it. And I downloaded the Robinhood app because I've been hearing so many of my friends talk about it. And uh, it was all over Reddit because I'm I'm a Reddit user also. And one of the first companies that I bought was uh, GameStop.
2: Oh, no. Okay. You see, you got in the hype.
8: But it was way before the hype because... I read something that said you should buy companies that you like. And always as a kid, I would spend a lot of time in GameStop, you know, and I thought they had a phenomenal business plan. They still do. Right. And I bought it at $9. I bought about like a hundred shares and then it went up to like $20 and I sold half of them. I didn't even know what I was doing. Right.
2: But that's actually not a bad thing if you sold half and then invest in some other, something else. And right. Diversify. I did, I did. Okay. Good for you.
8: I did. But, but it went to four hundred and seventy something dollars, and that's when I sold again half of that, and that's when the, all the hype was happening. But that I was very fortunate enough to be a part of that. But um, but what I noticed is that there's a stigma in black and brown and, and poverty stricken communities about investing being a very scary thing to do. And um, in your personal opinion, what do you think the reason of that is, and uh, how can we overcome? this perception to start benefiting from investing.
2: Where do I start with that Lou? So interestingly enough, have you ever heard of Ariel Investments? It is the first um, black owned uh, money management firm. Melody Hobson and John Rogers founded it. And we have for years of co-sponsored research comparing black versus white investors in America. And their, you know, the differences in how they think about investing. And um, I mean, I think the reason, you know, you would probably know this better than I do. But obviously, a lot of structural issues came in the way. There, there is a feeling. By the way, um, there's an equal mistrust between whites and blacks with financial services. So it's not a ethnicity thing. Unfortunately, for for my industry. But a big percentage of um, Black investors say they don't feel, they feel respected by our industry, which, you know, shame on us. So there's a lot, you know, structural and also um, Black investors or, or I should say Black Americans are more likely to invest in real estate. And Melody will say, you know, that's a good thing, but real estate is illiquid and real estate should be something that you live in. You know, or unless you're, you know, unless you're an expert, you know, investor in commercial real estate or something, but it's a, it's a home, and and so with Ariel and Schwab, we're really trying to change change that attitude. Now, I will tell you um, through the survey that we just did in February, very interesting, the number of young investors, forty and under, new investors, forty and under, were equal between black and white people. So, you know, you talk about being GameStop, but I don't want you to be in GameStop, you know, or two stocks, three stocks, and the market tanks, and then you get scared, sell and never come back. That's what our industry worries about. That's why I hope you're saving in your retirement account, in a diversified portfolio, and, and the GameStop uh, is your fund money. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is, so equal number of um, black versus whites coming in the market, so, th- so it's starting to even out, and also even participation in f- the 401k. So that's also another opportunity for leveling the playing field between blacks versus whites. The other thing I have to point out, and if you could help us get the word out, is that blacks are not saving at the rates that they should be, um, or at this at, at par of, of white Americans. Not to say that white Americans are saving enough either, but um, blacks are investing at a lot less um, percentage. So we, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think a lot of the firms are trying to step up, to be honest with you. That's kind of what my work is all about. Uh, you know, I see the lack of financial literacy in this country as a social justice issue. You know, the lack of access, the lack of knowledge, the lack of opportunity. And if we could get more Americans to have the basic understanding of money management, you know, the the budgeting and, and saving and investing and using debt properly and knowing when something's too good to be true, right? Like some of this stuff on, you know on reddit that you know then you know we can have people that will be more financially secure
1: Amy, I feel like with Carrie, it was so interesting because usually it's all about the story, right? And I think that Carrie has so much knowledge about investing and it's something that you and I talk about all the time. How do we get more women? How do we get more people of color investing? And it was hard not to just want her wisdom to share with everyone because I felt like it would be doing a disservice to not get some of those, you know, pearls of wisdom from her.
0: I do agree with you, but I have to add this. That I think that like the passion Carrie has around investing that is, she's carried through her whole life since she started as a file clerk with her dad when she was a teenager, like that is foundational to her
1: story. Yes, but also you know what it's really funny. I I really I don't know if it if just the way she framed it, but I went from thinking of her as Charles Schwab's daughter To thinking of her completely differently after this interview, because it really does sound like she's been there since the very beginning. I mean, she, she started working there when there were two rooms. And so she built the company with him.
0: She really did. And no one ever talks about it that way. And so that's such an important point. It's like when we talk about Amazon, you know, Mackenzie Scott was in the room with Jeff Bezos when he was building it. She's a co founder, she did everything from day one. And really, it sounds like Carrie is the same.
1: You know, the other day I was at breakfast with Bowen and he started saying isn't it amazing that Jeff Bezos's ex-wife or something like that got half of his money and I'm like, "Buddy, that was their money." I said, "I know." I was like, "That was their money that they shared and they built the company together." And but it was he got it completely. But I think it's so important that we have those conversations as the same thing with and maybe it was Melinda and Bill Gates he was thinking about. I can't remember. But I was like, Melinda Gates was like one of the you know, they met at work. She was like a yep. brilliant engineer. I, I think that so often, you know, there was a big financial independence component of what she went through with her own parents' divorce.
0: Well, it's really interesting because you just actually went to the heart of why we do this thing, Sam. It's that women's stories are erased and not heard right? And that's exactly why we've been doing this podcast for a year. And there's something I wanted to ask you because we've never done this on the podcast. You know, we are podcasters and we are journalists and we are mothers. We are many things, but we are also founders. And we don't talk a lot about our companies on the podcast. But hearing Carrie talk about her role in growing Schwab and all she's done made me just want to ask what we can ask our amazing listeners, all of you, um, to do to join you at Park Place Payment and me at the Riveter. So what, what can we do?
1: Well, there's a couple things. One is that at Park Place Payments, you know, we are always looking for amazing people to join us on our sales force, and it's a it's a commission only opportunity to become an entrepreneur and earn recurring revenue for the rest of time, whether it's as a side hustle or a full-time thing. So that's one thing. But I would say even more importantly, we're always looking for new merchants, whether it's a doctor's office or a restaurant or a dry cleaner or a yoga studio, whatever your business is, if you accept credit cards, then we would love for you to be a client of Park Place Payments. And Aim, tell us of what we can do to support The Riveter.
0: Well, The Riveter is in a really interesting rebuilding phase. You know, During the pandemic, The Riveter left all of its physical spaces behind and exited our leases. And so The Riveter is now really reframing how it can help women who are building their own businesses as freelancers or consultants. And what I would ask everyone to do right now is just follow us, sign up for our newsletter at theriveter.co and follow us on our Instagram at theriveterco. And Sam and I also wanted to let you know that we would love to talk directly with all of you. Uh, You can reach us on Twitter at on what's her story. You can reach us on Instagram at what's her story podcast. And we would just love for you to also, if you love us, leave a review on Apple podcasts. It really helps us grow uh, our audience um, and, and meet more of you. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to what's her story with Sam and Amy.
1: We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story podcast. What's Her Story with
0: Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at TheRiveter.co, and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at ParkPlacepayments.com.
1: Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns.
0: Today, we're so excited to welcome Carrie Schwab Pomerantz to the show. (laughs) Pomerantz.
1: Is that how she says it? No, she doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) You made it sound, I guess, French or something?